Bibles, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 4. And this evening we're going to complete this first section of this fourth chapter where Paul is speaking about the work of the ministry. This portion of this chapter ends at verse number 16, at least this first part that we're talking about. And the emphasis of this part is making application of what's been learned in the first three chapters. Now those first three chapters were extremely important doctrinal chapters. And I've mentioned that over and over again as we've looked at this fourth chapter, that uh, applying what we learn in chapters 1 through 3 is extremely important for spiritual growth. Paul emphasizes in this chapter the unity of Christians, and he tells us that unity among Christians can only be gained by the knowledge of the truth of God's word, and only by applying correct doctrine. Then next Paul spoke about spiritual gifts that are given for the ministry, and he tells us how that each of us are to uh, use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Then he went on to talk about particular gifts of ministry, and that's where he spoke about the apostles and prophets. He mentioned evangelists and pastors and teachers. And then he comes down to verse number 12, and he brings us to the great work of these spiritual offices. And he says here, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so the grand objective of all ministry is to take spiritually immature people and to move them to where they are spiritual adults. Build them up in the faith so that people that in this generation will be able to learn something that we can give to succeeding generations. And that's something that has been done all the, uh, throughout all the centuries since, since Christ was here. And I would say that particularly it was done very well from the first century to about the late 19th century. But since that time, the development of Christian people, in my opinion, and by what I read and what I see, has slowed down almost to a crawl. And what we don't find today is that among our Baptist people that we're really producing very many giants of the faith. Certainly not like was done in the past. And what's happened in, in America especially is that in the end of the 19th century, there was the rise of what's called revivalism. And revivalism uh, got started in the 19th century, then got into full swing about the middle of the 20th century. And when revivalism got going strongly, what happened was Baptists began to dump their doctrine. And that's just the plain truth of it. So that today, most of our Baptist people look more like Wesley than we do like Spurgeon. Revivalism brought with it uh, mistakes about the substitutionary atonement of Christ... It mixed up people on the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of the leaders of revivalism, like Billy Sunday, who you hear many Baptist pastors talk about and revere, what Billy Sunday couldn't even articulate clearly, justification by faith alone. And that is one of the main tenets of our faith. So the good theology that we had once that was taught by men like Benjamin Keach, John Gill, and Charles Spurgeon, those men were Baptist, and the theology has been replaced by men like Charles Finney, Dwight Moody, who weren't Baptist, and John R. Rice, who claimed to be a theologian but was by no means a theologian. So what we have now is no longer good theology, and what that produces is immature Christians. So what our Baptist churches have produced as a result of that is a type of Christian that has a child's mind in an adult's body. Now, Paul tells us very specifically in these verses that right doctrine is intended to move us to spiritual maturity. So the work of the ministry and the work of ministers, working with Christian people, 
is that we might come to the knowledge, Paul says here, knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now this evening, as I speak to you, I want to talk to you about why we don't want to remain as children, how the devil attempts to keep us in our immature state, and also what we are to do as we progress as mature Christians. So I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read the text verses for our study tonight. We're looking at uh, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to speak tonight. I ask you, Lord, you might help me as I preach this message. Lord, help me to say the right things in the right way. And um, as I've already told the people, Lord, there's no mean-spiritedness in any way involved in this. But, Lord, we do want to move the people of Berean Baptist Church from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity so that we will have something to pass along to the generations behind us, just like our Baptist forefathers did before us. So bless in the message tonight, and we'll give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight I'd like to concentrate mainly on verses 14 through 16. When the people of God are equipped with the principles of sound doctrine, they won't any longer be immature children. I don't think that it's any coincidence that we come now to chapter 4 of Ephesians, and Paul makes these statements about growing up and being mature Christians right after he speaks about the doctrines that he gave us in chapters 1 through 3. And I think without fail that that tells us that the doctrines in, in verses or chapters 1 through 3, if those doctrines fail to be expounded by Baptist pastors, then we're going to end up with spiritually weak people. In chapter 2, Paul speaks about total depravity and the total inability of man. And yet that doctrine is denied by most Baptists today. In chapters 1 and 3, he speaks about unconditional election, and that's denied by most Baptists today. In chapter 1, he talks about particular redemption, and that's denied by most Baptists today. In chapter 2, he talks about irresistible grace, and that's denied by most Baptists today. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he speaks of the perseverance of the saints. Strangely enough, you may not know it, but that's denied by most Baptists today, even though Baptists do say that they believe in preservation and they will teach preservation, yet they say they don't believe in perseverance. Now, if these great doctrines of the faith were taught by Paul in chapters 1 through 3, and they become the basis of spiritual maturity that we find in chapter 4, then I don't see how that any pastor could expect to move his people from spiritual immaturity to maturity without teaching the things that Paul has, done, has given us here. I don't think it's been demonstrated that's been done. And we have weak churches today because these kinds of doctrines aren't taught anymore. 
Now, first tonight, I want to discuss the marks of a child. Now, Paul is a very masterful writer. He makes common comparisons that help us to understand things. As we saw back when we were studying earlier chapters, Paul used comparisons like buildings and bodies when he talked about the church of Christ. In the end of the third chapter, or rather the end of the second chapter, he speaks about the analogy, or uses the analogy of citizenship. And he uses that to compare to the citizenship that we have in heaven. So here we come right back once again where Paul uses a very simple analogy, something that we can understand to help us uh, get to the truth that he wants to tell us. And so this time he uses the comparison between children and adults. And he's teaching us that Christian people are not to remain children. And that is that the growth of a Christian person ought to be as regular as, as the growth of a child. Now, a child, of course, starts out as a baby, and you expect that a child will grow up. You expect that every day there's going to be a period of growth in that child's life. Back in September, when our uh, grandbaby, Elisa, was born, we went down to San Diego, and uh, we spent about a week down there uh, as Clarissa had the baby and, and getting settled in and so forth. Well, about three months later, Clarissa brought the baby here for, for Christmas, and she wasn't the same baby that we saw in the hospital, and that's because she'd grown. And we expected her to grow. We expected her to be different. And if Clarissa had come and she brought a, this little baby and there was no growth, and she still weighed the same that she did in the hospital, she hadn't got any bigger, we would be alarmed by that. And not only would we be alarmed, but we'd be very upset. And we'd be wanting to get to the bottom of things to try to find out what's wrong with this baby that it's not growing. And the very same thing is true in our spiritual lives. If a person can see you today and then come back in six months and see you again, and you haven't grown any at all in your spiritual life, then there's a problem there. There's a problem that has to be dealt with. Now, sadly, I think that's all too often the problem with Christian people today. There's very little growth among Christians, even among uh, people who have been Christians for many, many years. And I believe, folks, that the major culprit that we have today that stunts spiritual growth is what you hear from behind the pulpit. The one who has the biggest responsibility for helping people grow in their faith is the pastor of a church. And the reason that we don't see spiritual growth among people is because we're not getting the doctrines taught from the pulpit that are the right food so people can grow. Now, here's the thing. We all start out as baby Christians. We all come into the Christian life exactly the same way, and we all know what it is. We come into the Christian life through the new birth. And if we all come in at, through the new birth, that means that all of us have to be immature. I mean, it doesn't make any difference what age you are, what your physical age is when you get saved. You start out like every other person. You come in as a spiritual baby. And all Christians who start out as spiritual babies have exactly the same characteristics. And they have the marks of a child. Now I want to talk to you about a, a few things here, three things that show us the marks of a child and how Christians are immature when they come into the Christian life. First of all, children are unstable. Children are predictably unpredictable. I mean, a child can flit around from one thing to another. He can change his directions and, and have interests that are different from one moment to another. And uh, he, can, he can, has no problem at all changing from one thing to the next. Uh, for a few minutes, there's a certain thing that will catch his attention. 
And he'll stick with that for a little while, but it won't be long until that doesn't hold his attention any longer. And so he moves on to something else. So nothing captivates a child for a very long period of time. I mean, it's really amazing. All of the toys that we have to buy today to try to keep children occupied. You know, it used to be, in the old days, you give a kid a stick and a string, and he's happy forever, it seemed like. But today, you've got to buy video games, and you have to buy uh, computers and cell phones and all these kinds of things. And that's because kids move from one thing to another so fast that you just can't keep up with them. Well, the same thing is true of a spiritually immature Christian. You see, it doesn't take very much time to change the mind of a person, an immature Christian. It doesn't take much time to change their minds about things that are in the Word of God. So whenever a new doctrine comes along or a new opinion, immature Christians are right there to gobble those things up. Sometimes doctrines can be complete polar opposites of one another. And yet one day the Christian believes this and the next day he believes something else. And so baby Christians can travel from one extreme to another without any problem at all. John MacArthur made this statement. He said, despite our unprecedented education, sophistication, freedom, and access to God's word and sound Christian teaching, it seems that every religious huckster can find a ready hearing and financial support from among God's people. The number of foolish, misdirected, corrupt, and even heretical leaders to whom many church members willingly give their money and allegiance is astounding and heartbreaking. And folks, that's exactly why a person like Joel Osteen can sell millions of books, giving out a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the doctrine that he teaches, he can rake in money hand over fist. It's because people are so weak spiritually they can't spot a phony. Baptist people buy those kinds of books by the millions. Today we have Baptist people that have gone gone wholeheartedly after things like the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church. And they don't know enough to even study out the doctrine to find out what's in there, whether it's good for them or not. And so everybody's out there with another doctrine, with another plan, with another thing, and Christians are are following it, swallowing everything hook, line, and sinker. Then also we find this, that children are unsuspecting. Children will believe just about anything that you tell them. Now, I'm sure that all of you at some time or another, you've told your children, don't talk to strangers. And why do you tell them not to talk to strangers? Well, it's because children are easily led away. They're easily lured away. When somebody tells them something, they will believe it. So you can take a child and you can come up with the wildest story that you can possibly imagine. And you can tell that child that story and their eyes get as big as saucers. And they say, really? And you say, really? And they take in every word that you say. Maybe you heard this story about a little boy who wanted to sell his puppy. You know, children are are very fickle. And this little boy got tired of his puppy, and so he decided that he wanted to sell it. So he went to his mom, and he said, Mom, I want to sell my puppy, and I'm going to sell it for $10,000. And his mom said, Well, I don't think that you're going to get $10,000 out of it. You may have to come down off that price just a little bit. Well, a few hours later, the little boy came back into the house, and he didn't have his puppy. And he said, Mom, I sold my puppy. And she said, Well, did you have to come down off the price any? He said, no, I got every penny I was asking for. He said, I traded it for two $5,000 cats. <laughs> Children believe just about anything. And this is Paul's whole point right here about maturity. Because without it, 
You can be tossed to and fro with just about any wind of doctrine. Anything can influence you because you believe everything that you're told. Now, if you think about this, where, who fills up the roles of the cults today? Do you know who it is, really? The majority of the cults are filled with people who have come out of denominational churches. And that's because they didn't know enough to discern the correct doctrine. And so when somebody came along with a false translation of the scripture, and when somebody came along and said, there is no hell, that sounded pretty good to them. And so they ate it up. They joined up with them. And so they were like children who had their mouths wide open. They suck up anything that comes along. Now the third thing is, children are unlearned. How do you tell if something is true or not? Well, most of us, we... We determine whether we believe something by things that we've already learned. We compare it to things that we already know and things that we already understand. Now today what happens in our schools is they put our kids into an environment where they learn things like uh, evolution. And evolution is presented to our children in such a way that there's never any question about whether it's true or not. And so the children listen to this and they take that in. They don't even ask any questions about it because it's presented as a fact. And so they just believe it, and they don't ask anybody anything any different. Well, sometimes the very same thing happens in a church. When I first began to, to teach on the doctrines of grace, there were many people in the church who hadn't heard these things before. Now, it's not like I invented them, because I didn't. It's, it's in the Bible. It's been in the Bible all along. It's been taught by our Baptist forefathers all the way back to the time of Christ. So it's not my invention. But what if you go to a church where these things are never mentioned. And you go to a church where you're taught that salvation is like a gift, and salvation is, is given in such a way that God holds out a carrot in front of you, and whether you re decide to receive that carrot or take that gift is totally up to you, and it has no bearing at all whether God wants you to or what God's work is or whether the Holy Spirit is involved in it at all. It's just the carrot that you decide to take. What if you've never been taught that God plans salvation and that God has a purpose for everything that he does and that Jesus accomplished everything that salvation was intended to do, that Jesus completed it. But you've been in a church that teaches that the success of the gospel is dependent upon men and not upon God. And you've been in a church where you've been taught that the success of Christ's death whether it really works or not, whether it really does what's intended or not, depends upon man's response to what Christ has done. Well, if you've been in a church that teaches that, when you hear the truth, you reject the truth. And why do you do that? Well, not because, not because you've heard the truth and rejected it and disbelieved, but simply because you haven't heard what the truth is yet. You haven't heard the truth being taught. And so that's where Christians are today because Baptists no longer teach the doctrines of grace like we once did. The people don't know about it. They don't even know that the doctrine exists, exists out there. And when it is, it's perverted by people who really don't know what it is and can't explain it. Now, I believe that a proper presentation of these doctrines, if they're put into the proper context and they're taught without prejudice, these doctrines will be believed. And the reason that I believe that is because it's the same Holy Spirit who works in all of us. And if we approach the, the, uh, the doctrines of the Word of God simply from a biblical standpoint, there is no way that we can reject such plain statements that are made in the Word of God. 
These are very plainly taught doctrines of the Bible. And you can't discount just out of hand what's so plainly said in the scriptures. So these are the marks of a child. They're unstable, they're unsuspecting, and they're unlearned. And the only way that you can correct that, there's only one way to correct it. And that's through the time that it takes to grow up. You can't correct it any other way. So it's a slow process. And the problem here is that many Christians are not growing up. They're just growing older. And they're never progressing in their Christian life. They spin their wheels all the time. Well, let me hurry on because I need to go to the next part because what I want to talk about next is this is not a peculiar phenomenon that happens. I mean, there is a reason why this is taking place. There's something at work to stop the growth process. Now, we know that if a child stops growing, that there has to be something behind that, and you try to find out what it is. Well, I think all of us already know what it is that stunts spiritual growth, and it's the devil. So secondly, let's talk about the methods of the devil. The devil is a cancer that kills growing cells. You see, the devil knows what he's doing. He's been around a long time. He's seen a lot of Christians, and the devil works in a lot of ways. Now, this evening, I want to concentrate, though, mainly on what the devil does with the Word of God, because we have in chapter, or in verse number 14, rather, uh, three different ways that the devil perverts the Word of God or works with the Word of God to keep people from believing the truth. Now, the first thing that he does is he multiplies errors. Now, verse number 14 says, every wind of doctrine. And I think that Paul uses the word wind here to show us that false interpretations of Scripture come at us from every direction. They're all around us. I mean, we're surrounded on every side by people who teach false doctrines. You can take off in this direction. You don't have to go very far. And you find some people that are preaching that Satan and Jesus were brothers. You go a little bit further more north in that direction, and you'll find some people who teach the seed of faith theory. And that is that every person is born with a little seed of faith, and it's up to you to cultivate that faith, and that's what you use to put your trust in Jesus. You can go in this direction over here, and you'll find people who teach that spiritual gifts like tongues and healings and things like that are evidences of of higher spirituality. Go a little bit further over that way, and you'll find there's some people who teach that one way that you can get to God is to come through the Virgin Mary, and that you need to bow down and pray to her. Over in this direction over here, you'll find some people that teach that we need to baptize babies and that by baptizing them, we wash away their sin and they're saved in that baptism. Go over this direction and you'll find people who believe that the church is just one big universal thing and everybody who decides that they want to follow Christ in some way or another becomes a part of this big universal body. And so what do we have? Everywhere that you go around us, north, south, east, and west... Divide it up even further, northeast, northwest, southwest, southeast. Keep on dividing it until you find out that you've got a huge circle where we're hemmed in by false doctrine. It's everywhere that we turn. There are churches on every corner that are teaching something different. There's all kinds of false doctrine out there. So the devil is confusing people by multiplying the errors. Now here's the very reason why we keep the Baptist name on the sign. We're unashamedly Baptist. We teach Baptist doctrine. And we believe Baptist doctrine is Bible doctrine. And we preach that doctrine without apology. We're not sorry for what we have to preach from this pulpit. 
But what the devil does, he confuses people just by the sheer amount of error. And every single doctrine that you come across in the Word of God is fair game for the devil to pervert. The next thing that the devil does, he purposely deceives with the Word. Now, this is something that you really may not want to hear me say, but some people are duped unsuspectingly. And preachers may preach some false doctrine unintentionally. But I want to tell you that most false doctrine is purposely planted. Most of it is taught because the perpetrators know exactly what they're doing. I think the leaders of Catholicism know exactly what they're doing. Now, the people in the church, the lay people, they may not always know what's going on. They may not always know what's happening. But you can't have scandals of the magnitude that the Roman Catholic Church has had. And I'm not just talking about a scandal here lately. I'm talking about centuries. If you study the history of the thing, centuries upon centuries of scandal after scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. And you don't have those things without people knowing about them, without people purposely trying to hide those things. The doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church are purposely intended to keep people enslaved to the system, enslaved to the church. They perpetuate the church and make it rich through their doctrine. So you have doctrines like purgatory, prayers for the dead, absolution of sins by priests, and all of that is calculated to enrich the Roman Catholic Church. I do not see how anybody could defend the Roman Catholic Church on the basis of honesty. It's just not there. It's been non-existent throughout their whole history. And then you have the cults. All of the cults are based on some level of deceit. And if you would do a little bit of reading on the origins of people like the Jehovah Witnesses, you would find out that even secular authorities have declared Jehovah Witnesses to be liars. The New Translation New World Translation that the Jehovah Witnesses use as their Bible has been proven to be pure intended perversion. Then we could go on and we could talk about faith healers. I mean, there's millions of people who are confused about that and duped over this whole faith healing thing when there's never been any documentation, any real results from it. I just had a conversation with somebody about this the, uh, the other day with uh, one of the founders of the churches who was a faith healer, and she was in a in a, uh, uh, a debate with a, with a Baptist preacher. Maybe some of you have heard of Ben Bogard. But um, she debated Ben Bogard, and Bogard put the hammer on her. And what I mean is he said, produce, show me the results. Show me the proof of your healings. And in this whole debate, all they did was flit around and, and tried to avoid it and never produced even one single person that was healed. So you have that kind of deception. So that's exactly what Paul is talking about when he speaks about the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Paul is speaking there about purposeful deception. Now, you might think that I'm unkind by saying these types of things, but the Bible has never told us that we have to be polite and charitable towards those who preach false doctrine, not towards people who are lying in wait to deceive. Now, this is why John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, or 2 John chapter 1, rather, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. W.A. Criswell, who's passed on now, but he was a great preacher from the state of Texas, Baptist preacher in Corpus Christi, he wrote this about that verse in his commentary. When, he, when John speaks about someone coming to you with this, these other doctrines, 
He says the word comes implies that the false teachers have deliberately entered the Christian community for the sole purpose of teaching their destructive and false doctrines. While rudeness is not advocated, sternness and determination are clearly dictated as a pattern of behavior for believers. The prohibition includes exclusion from fellowship as well as the refusal to ask God's blessing upon such a heretic. Similar prohibitions are found throughout the New Testament. Compare Romans 16, 17, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, Titus 3, 10, 2 Peter 2, verse 1, Jude 4, 18 and 19. Casual reading of this passage, together with these other references, establishes the seriousness of the offense of doctrinal heresy. The attitude of the church is also clearly defined. The rationale for such strictness is the eternal consequences of heresy. Incorrect doctrine leads men astray, thus securing their eternal damnation in hell. In addition, the possibility of controversy and dissension in the assemblies provides another cause for stern action. You see, I think that we are far too guilty of trying to be nice to people who are teaching perverted doctrine and things that send people to hell. Jesus was not nice when he spoke to the Pharisees and he called them vipers. And he called them whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Paul wasn't nice and he didn't hold back when he said these words, they lie in wait to deceive. Peter didn't hold back when he said, they are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. Jude didn't hold back when he said, they're filthy dreamers. He called them raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame. And you may remember this verse from our study in Jude. He said, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches with ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Sometimes I wonder why we're afraid to call an ace an ace and a spade a spade. A religious deceiver, folks, is the worst of all. And that's because he traffics in the souls of men. Religious deceit sends people to hell. And most of the people, quite frankly, who teach lies from pulpits don't do it innocently. They know exactly what they're doing. So my position is to take that of Jesus and the apostles and to point out false doctrine. Now, thirdly, in Satan's method, he downplays doctrine. People will maybe read the word of God, but he downplays the doctrine. You see, Satan tries to make you think that doctrine really doesn't matter. I mean, after all, everybody calls himself a Christian. We're all, we're all one big happy family. We have some differences, and the differences really don't matter. I mean, after all, everybody's going to the same place. And as I said, maybe, I don't know if it was Sunday night or whatever, let's just all join hands and sing Kumbaya wherever, when we go to that place, wherever it is. But it's not only that. There are some people who preach that doctrine doesn't matter because all they want to do is preach what they say is the simple gospel. And if there's anything that needlessly complicates what they want to preach, that becomes too complex for them. Now, remember, there was a pastor who said that our doctrine at Berean Baptist is too complex. You don't think discussing the Trinity is a complex subject? You don't think that Peter thought Paul was complex. Do you remember this verse in 2 Peter chapter 3? 
an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, listen, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, under their own destruction. Peter never said, give up. Because the doctrine's too complex. You can't learn that. Just give up. You can't understand it. You know what I think Peter had in mind? I think he had in mind some of the very things that we've been talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. They're a little bit complex. Sure they are. But those doctrines are not too complex for people who want to study the word of God and find out what they mean. And if you want to go from spiritual immaturity to maturity, don't stick with just the simple stuff all the time. You need to get down to the doctrines of God's word. Now, our fundamental brothers don't like to attack that because their method of looking at the scriptures is fundamentally flawed. So doctrine is important. Right doctrine separates us from the wrong practice. And folks, if you don't try to understand it, you know where it leaves you? It leaves you with a child's mind in an adult's body. Now, let me go on and we'll finish with this. Number three is the maturing of adults. The marks of a child and the methods of the devil, but the place that we really want to come to is to be mature adults. You know, I'm reminded of this scripture in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. He says, I spake as a child. Now notice what he says in verse 15 of our text in Ephesians, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So what is it that a mature Christian does? Well, we speak the truth. Mature Christians speak the truth. Without truth, there isn't any maturity. I mean, it doesn't matter if you have 17 degrees behind your name. If you don't speak the truth, you'll never be a mature Christian. And this is why I think that John MacArthur was right when he talked about all these religious hucksters out here. They've duped weak, immature Christians... And they don't have the truth. You know, every now and then I, I flip on the television and I'm able to catch one of these TV preachers that's on. And I may listen for a little bit to uh, Fred Price. Anybody heard Fred Price? Somebody, oh, maybe one or two of you. Uh, Creflo Dollar. You may have seen him. Uh, Kenneth Copeland. Maybe more of you recognize that name. You know, I, I watch their, their programs and I look at the audience as they're listening to what these men are saying. And those guys, the people in the audience, they hang on every word. They raise their hands and raise their handkerchiefs and shout amen. And you would think that there was truth oozing from every corner of the building. And they were really knocking down some great spiritual things as they're preaching. But you listen to that for about five minutes and you find out there's nothing to it. Not at all. There is no truth in it. It's lies. And yet people get built up into their emotional spasms and their emotional reactions over these things. And they think they've really got some strong truth there. Folks, there isn't any maturity without the truth. Now, I said it before. In our Baptist churches, how are we ever going to reach spiritual maturity if we don't preach the doctrines that were in Ephesians 1 through 3 so we could get down to chapter 4 and become the mature Christians? We're to speak the truth. But I want to remind you also that we are to speak the truth in love. And that's what Paul says here. Let, let me just read to you what one commentator said about love. He said, subtract love from joy. What do you have? You have the kind of hedonistic reveling found in the secular world, 
the pursuit of pleasure of its own sake. Joy is distorted. Take love from sanctification. The result is self-righteousness, the kind of thing that distinguished the scribes and Pharisees of Christ's day, but allowed them to be filled with hatred so that they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. Sanctification is destroyed. Take love from truth. The result is bitter orthodoxy. Truth remains, but it is proclaimed in such an unpleasant, harsh manner that it fails to win anybody. Take love from unity, and you have ecclesiastical tyranny, in which a church imposes human standards on those within it. But instead of subtracting love, you express love. Love for God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible, one another in the world. What do you have? You have all the other marks of the church because they naturally follow. Love for God leads to joy. Nothing is more joyful than knowing and loving him. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ leads to holiness. As he said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Love for the word of God leads to truth. If we love the Bible, we will read it and grow in knowledge of what the word contains. Love for the world leads to mission. Love for other believers leads to unity. So we're to speak the truth in love. But as I say that, we can't misunderstand what Paul's meaning is. Many people will say, well, to speak the truth in love means that we can't be critical of other beliefs. We're not to mention what other people believe. We shouldn't say anything about other denominations. What we ought to do is just focus upon our positive message and let's be sweet and gentle to everybody all the time. Now, folks, if that's what Paul meant, he could never accomplish what he said in verse number 14. How could we be children no longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine if somebody doesn't tell us what that doctrine is and if somebody doesn't tell us who the people are preaching that doctrine? You see, Christianity can't exist without the truth. So no matter what you might think speaking the truth in love means, it can't mean don't expose false doctrine. And it can't mean don't tell when somebody is a false teacher. It can't mean that. If that's what it means, then throw out verse number 14 because Paul had a brain bubble when he wrote that verse. Let's finish with this thought, though. Mature Christians will speak the truth, and here's our last thought. We progressively develop. Day by day, month by month, year by year, we grow in our knowledge of Christ. We exercise the spiritual graces that have been given. And as we grow, we contribute to the overall well-being of our church. Now, verse number 16 says, From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So what a mature Christian does, he contributes to the growth of his church. And he does it by exercising all the spiritual gifts that God has given him, and he uses that in the church for the glory of God. Now, Paul's recurring theme here, and we see it once again in that verse that we just read, is to compare uh, the church to the human body. And each part has a functioning part. Every part has to do its part, or else the body doesn't work well together. And so when a church is operating properly, it takes its orders from the head, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the head speaks, the body moves. It's just like your fingers and your toes. Now, if your brain tells your fingers to move and your feet to walk and there's a delay, it takes a while. Something's bad wrong, badly wrong if that's the way it works. So as we receive our instructions from Christ, we move in an immediate response to do exactly what God tells us to do. 
That's when you're in spiritual maturity. We respond to Christ working in us. We progressively grow day by day. So it says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so all of us need to work towards this end, that we don't be children, that we're not people who have adult bodies and have the mind of a child. We need to be growing, and that's why we continue to preach the doctrines of God's word without reservation. And if it's hard, it's hard. We have to learn it if we're going to grow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. I'm sorry, Lord, for the poor presentation of it. But, Lord, you can take your word and use it the way that you see fit. So we ask you, Lord, that you would bless our people tonight. Though we say some unpleasant things, some hard things, things that perhaps we don't like to talk about, and yet we are to declare the whole counsel of the word of God. So, Lord, speak to your people tonight. Help our church members to grow. May we be mature Christians as you'd have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.